Good morning and happy Mother's Day to you out there. Good morning to CBC members, regular visitors, anybody else who might be watching this morning. And since we're not gathering today as we normally would be, and I won't have this opportunity to say this in your presence, I'll still say it here. Because we love mothers very much, we're going to talk about Jesus today. Uh, I know I often say things like this on holidays and sometimes get some flack for it, and I will happily receive it. Because we, we care about moms, uh, we're going to talk about Christ, the most important thing that we could talk about on Mother's Day or any other day. So today, friends, is the beginning of a series of meditations that I plan to, to do over the next 12 weeks or so. Uh, we're entering into this reopening plan that we have here in the state of North Carolina, and this is going to mean a number of things for us. There's been some some email correspondence and some videos that have gone out this week about some of the details of our plans as a church over the next month, two months, three months. And all this to say that it seems that continuing to do meditations, whether we're doing them live and online like this, or maybe in abbreviated services somehow, or live streaming across various home groups or whatever, it seems that doing these 30 minute long meditations is going to continue to serve us well as a church, probably for the next two, three months or so. So I've got a dozen or so different meditations planned for us over the coming months. I'm calling this series of meditations Encounters with Jesus. And so these are going to be various passages from the Gospels, not from the Gospel of Mark, because we just recently went through the Gospel of Mark as a church. These will be various kinds of texts. Some of them will be interchanges between Jesus and his audience. Some of them will be parables. Some of them teaching. Some of them will be well-known. Some of them will not be as well known. Some have intentionally been picked because people are not quite sure what to do with them. And some have been picked because from the perspective of the pastors of CBC, these particular passages are not often taught very well. And so we're hoping to maybe shed some light, some clarity on them. I'm calling these these messages meditations on purpose. They are not expositional sermons per se, but they will still be in the text. But I don't understand them to be the same thing exactly that I would be doing on a normal Sunday morning when the whole church is gathered and we're working our way through books of scripture. And I am aiming to exposit passages that way. As I've already said, I think these meditations will serve us well as we make our way into the reopening season. And so I've got enough material to get us through the end of July if necessary. And again, that doesn't mean that all of them will be live streamed this way. It might be that we're meeting in person, but in an abbreviated fashion in order to order to accommodate multiple services or whatever at the Y to reduce capacity and all of those fun things. Continue to pray for the leadership of the church that we might have wisdom in this season to make good decisions about logistical matters like that. So today's passage, I'm sort of coming out of the gates hot in this series, Encounters with Jesus. We're going to consider the parable of the prodigal son together today. So that's in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32 in particular. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to that passage, you could do so, and that will serve you well. Just a couple of brief comments about the parable of the prodigal son. It's well known and familiar to many for good reason. And I'm not sure how you, as you sit listening this morning, have heard the prodigal son taught before. But regardless of, of whether you've heard it taught well or maybe not as well, I hope that this morning is encouraging and comforting for you as we consider this well-known portion of Scripture. As always, as we come to this parable, context is critical. 
Uh, context is critical always whenever we're trying to rightly understand God's word, and the same is true here. The prodigal son is the third of three parables that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15, as the chapters are broken up for us in our Bibles. Luke 15 begins with these words, Luke 15, 1 and 2. We read this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Christ. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And it is this, that grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes, that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them even, that prompts Jesus to tell the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. So remember the purpose of Christ's parables and how they function in Scripture. They reflect and communicate the principles of the kingdom of God, including how it is established and built. And in so doing, the parables of Christ are aimed at the hearts of men and women to crush a number of things and to show us the error of our thinking in a number of ways. The parables of Jesus always crush self-confidence and self-righteousness, and they also destroy any notions of entitlement or merit, the fact that we could earn our standing before God. The parables of Jesus, frankly, just show us our hearts and they expose our wrong thinking. And it's appropriate that we would always come away from reading or considering a parable of Christ and think or say, he was talking about me. Like he exposed my heart, my mind. He was talking about me. Think about the, the parable, even in, in the Old Testament, that the prophet Nathan tells King David in 2 Samuel 12, after David has had the affair with Bathsheba, uh, Nathan tells David a parable, and David's takeaway in that moment is, oh my gosh, like that parable was about me, and it's exposing my heart, my sin, and it drives David to repentance. That should be the takeaway for us when we encounter the parables of Christ. These parables of Jesus in Luke 15 are meant to blow up the thinking and the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes that we read about in Luke 15 too. They grumble because Jesus receives sinners and eats with them, and Jesus is going to show them the error of their thinking. So before we get going, let's not be too hard on the Pharisees and the scribes. We all tend to think like they do. And so Jesus is going to show us our error as well. The parables in Luke 15 reveal the heart of God towards sinners, his posture toward us, in particular, his mercy and his grace and his steadfast love toward us and his joy in saving us. And also, the parables of Luke 15 reveal the way that God saves by grace and not merit. And in the case of the first two parables, through his seeking and finding that which was lost, not the other way around. God is the one who saves sinners. So now that you have your Bibles open to the parable of the prodigal son, we are going to read this portion of Scripture together, beginning in Luke 15 and verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. We thank God for his word. Let's pray briefly as we are about to consider Scripture together, and then we'll dive into the text. Father, we do pray for your help now as we look to Scripture. We pray that we would see you rightly and that we would marvel at your grace and your love and your mercy that you show to wretched sinners like us. We thank you for Jesus and the fact that he has accomplished our redemption. So we pray that you would guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember that as we're coming out of the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, God seeks and saves that which is lost. And God delights to save sinners. It brings him joy. And the salvation of sinners is quite literally the celebration of heaven. And now we get into this parable of the prodigal son. It's quite clear that the older brother in the parable, the older son, represents the Pharisees and the scribes and anyone who has their perspective that would be seen in Luke 15 too, grumbling that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is showing the Pharisees and the scribes pointedly that they don't understand the way of salvation, and they also don't understand the character of God. They don't understand the way of salvation, that is how God saves his people who are sinners, all of them. And they don't understand the character of God, that is his love, grace, and mercy toward his people who, again, are all sinners. The point of this parable, though, it needs to be stated from the outset, is the father, not either of the sons. I mean, the father in his posture toward his sons is the real focus and emphasis of the parable. So we're going to look first at verses 11 to 24. The younger son is in the foreground in those verses, and so we're going to consider him. But in particular, we're going to consider the father's disposition toward him. So in verses 11 to 16, we see really the rebellion and the ruin of the younger son described. He demands his inheritance before his father is dead. It's a pretty harsh move. Dad, you're not even dead yet, but what I really want is for you to give me the property that's coming to me when you are no longer here. And the father does this. He honors the request of his son. He divides his property up between his two 
his two sons, his two heirs. The younger son, having received what he would get from his father, he, he dips out. He heads into a far country and squanders all of his property. Now, that imagery from Jesus is intentional. We are, remember, in a context where Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience, and for a Jew to make his way into a far country would have been not a small thing in that context. And so Jesus is intentional in the imagery that he's using, and it's going to even get more extreme. The temperature is going to get turned up even more here in the coming verses. So then we see that as the son has gone into far country and squanders all of his property, trials in the form of famine come, and he has nothing to the point where he has to hire himself out to a foreigner. Again, this would have been scandal in the eyes of a Jew. And this foreigner, to make things worse, so not only do you have a Jewish person working for a a Gentile, as it were, a, a person of the nations, a foreigner, we see that he is sent out by this foreigner into his fields to feed pigs who were a an unclean animal. So this was just all kinds of craziness and all kinds of ruin being represented here in the depiction that Jesus is giving. The younger son's plight is so bad that he desires to eat the food that he's feeding to pigs. It really couldn't get worse in terms of his shame and the scandal of it. And we see that no one will help him. No one will give him anything at the end of verse 16. So then in verses 17 to 19, the younger son makes a plan. He plans to go back to his father He plans to confess his sin and then make a plea. And his plea is this. Like, Dad, I'm I'm not worthy to be called your son, so just bring me back into your household as a servant, as a slave, essentially. I'll come back. The son is saying this. I'll come back and work for you, Dad. I'm not even asking that I be treated as your boy anymore. Just let me work in your, your household. Now, the son is right about a couple of things. He has sinned greatly against heaven and against his father. And he's right that he is not worthy to be called his father's son. That's true. He hasn't acted in such a way that would make him worthy to be called his father's son. So this all brings us to the climax of the piece about the younger son. In verses 20 to 24, we see the son's arrival back at the father's house. And we see, in particular, the father's response to him. So the son rises in verse 20, and he comes to his father. He heads home. But then we see that his father sees him while he is still a long way off. And the father, we're told, feels compassion and runs to his son and hugs him and kisses him. The father is compassionate. He is exuberant. He is joyful at the arrival of his son. To the extent that he runs to his son, which was not something that an upstanding older Jewish man would do, and he embraces him, he hugs him, and he kisses him. He shows him great affection. So in verse 21, we see the son start to make his pitch. He's confessing. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but then the son can't even finish everything that he's planned to say. The father interrupts him. You can see that. In verse 22, the way Jesus words it, but the father said, so the son is talking, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then the celebration ensues. Remember the son in his mind, he's going to come back to work for his dad. 
He's going to be a servant, not a son. But the father will have nothing of that. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This is astonishing grace and love. As the son is saying, Dad, I've sinned. Let me work for you. Let me work for you, not as a son, but as your slave. The father says, no, no, put my best robe on my boy. Put my ring on his hand and let's celebrate because my child is home. This, brothers and sisters, is God's posture toward us. It's one of steadfast love, one of grace and not merit, one of mercy and not us getting what we deserve. This is how God deals with every single one of his children. The truth about us, just like the younger son in this parable, is that we are sin-sick wretches who have rebelled against our heavenly Father and have squandered our lives in a foreign land. But then the wonderful good news about God and His way of redemption through Christ is that God has saved us through what Jesus has done, which we receive completely by faith, not by any works or any kind of merit. We don't earn anything. Just as this younger son had not earned the response of his father, we have not earned the response of our heavenly father to us. The wonder and the scandal of the gospel is that Jesus has satisfied for our sins. He has atoned for all of the wrong that we have done. He has atoned for our inherent guilt and corruption. And he has borne the wrath of God and satisfied it that God has against the sin of of us that we have committed and against just our inherent wickedness. And as depicted in this parable, when the son comes and is confessing his sin and is bargaining with the father and is giving his plea, I'm going to come and I'm going to work for you, dad. The father just says, no. He's like, put, put the best robe that we have on my son. Well, we too, by faith, get to wear the best robe imaginable none other than the robe of the righteousness of Christ. So that when we are looked at by God the Father in the Lord Jesus, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's like we sing in the wonderful hymn, The Solid Rock, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We now, in Christ Jesus, call God Father, and we will be with Him forever. This is the good news of the gospel. Then in verse 25 of the parable of the prodigal son, the focus shifts to the older son. He's now in the foreground. So let's make some observations about him and what the father says to him. In verses 25 to 30, we, we see something of the older son's perspective. We read that the older son is in the field when all of this is going down. And he hears the commotion up at the house. So he goes and gets one of the servants and gets some intel from him. And immediately upon finding out what's going on, he's, he's mad. The older son is not pleased with what's going on to the extent that he refuses to go in to celebrate with everybody else. And so the father comes out to talk with him, to ask him to come in and celebrate. And the son's response to the father is telling. He points to his obedience and his dedication to his dad. And he is convinced that he has not been rewarded as he should have been rewarded. He hasn't gotten what he deserves from his perspective. And he's mad that his worthless brother, who doesn't deserve anything, is now being rewarded with this celebration. So he thinks, it seems, from the text, that he deserves his father's favor in a way that his brother doesn't. And he's convinced that he's earned it. But then in verses 31 and 32, we see the father's response. And it's essentially two pieces. 
part one of, of the father's response is, son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. Everything that's mine is yours. And then secondly, it's appropriate, son, that we should celebrate. Because your brother was dead and he's alive. And he was lost and is now found. Celebration is in order. The older son has seen his father, it appears, as a hard man. You know, Dad, I have been nothing but obedient. I have been nothing but faithful. I've been dedicated to you. And you're such a hard man that you wouldn't even give me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. To which the father says, son, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours always, all the time. Everything that's mine. You have always had everything that is mine. The father is a generous father who lavishes his kids with good gifts. And that word gifts is important. Gifts, not rewards. The older son has misunderstood his father's character. The older son has also seen his father as a man who operates on a system of, of merit. He's going to reward his children based upon what they've done or have not done. This is clear in the response of the older son. He says to his dad in verse 29, beginning, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command and you did not reward me. I deserve to be rewarded, dad, and you haven't done it, is his argument. But when this son of yours, my worthless younger brother, who has devoured your property with prostitutes comes, you kill the fattened calf for him. He doesn't deserve it, dad. You should be rewarding me and not him. There's a lot that could be said about how the older son is not as worthy as he thinks or how he hasn't obeyed as he thinks he has, but that's another, another conversation for another time. The real issue at hand here is the fact that the father is a redeemer. He tells his older son, it's appropriate to celebrate and be glad because your brother has been rescued. It's important that we would realize that this celebration, while it is over the the rescuing, in one sense, the redemption of the younger son. This father, excuse me, this party is the father's party. I mean, he is the one who has decided to throw it. He is the one who is celebrating the fact that his son has come home, the fact that his son has been rescued and redeemed and saved. The father is a redeemer who delights in the redemption of his children, and he celebrates then. It's appropriate that a party would happen when a child of his comes home. When it comes to his children, the father does not operate on merit, but grace. He shows unwavering, steadfast love to them, even in the face of their sin and failure. The older son has misunderstood his father and how he deals with his children. So all of this, the older son's misunderstanding, is why he is angry. And so this is the, our Lord Jesus Christ exposing the hearts and the minds of his audience and driving all of this down on a wedge. You're grumbling that I receive sinners and that I eat with them. It's because you don't understand the character of God and it's because you don't understand the way that God saves. You don't understand that God delights to save sinners and that there is more celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 hypothetical righteous persons who need no repentance. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, thank God he does. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came into the world to seek and save the lost, and he has done it. We were once dead, and now we're alive. We were lost and are found because of the work of Christ in our place and because God in his sovereign grace has seen fit to grant us faith and repentance that we might trust in his son. It's a remarkable thing to think that our God loves to, delights in saving sinners even like you and me, and that our salvation is the celebration of heaven. It's not because we are worthy of that. It's because this is who our God is, a God of mercy and grace and steadfast love. Our God is a redeemer. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him for his help as we go about the rest of our Lord's days and even our weeks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you most of all and give you praise most of all for who you are, that you are a God of mercy and grace and steadfast love, that you abound in these things and that you are patient and long-suffering with us. We give you praise that you delight to save sinners that you delight to pour out the riches of your grace on wretches like us who don't deserve it. We thank you for the work of Christ in our place, that he has satisfied for our sin and provided us with righteousness and holiness, and that everything that needs to be done has been done in him. We give you praise that you are righteous in saving us righteously. Your wrath and your judgment and your justice have been poured out upon Jesus in our place. It is not as though you overlook sin in saving sinners like us, and we give you praise for that. So, Father, we do ask for your help as we go about the rest of our days and our weeks that lie in front of us. We do pray that you would sustain and strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus, that you would help us to trust him and him alone, that regardless of how we may be doing or feeling, that we would look to Christ and find safety and rest and peace and comfort. Help us to trust Christ, we pray. We pray for your grace that we would not sin and for your grace that we might live unto you. We pray for your help in all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, again, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Um, I hope that this meditation has been of some encouragement to you. You can, um, I hope, be looking forward to more meditations from the Gospels in Uh, this series, Encounters with Jesus. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God that he receives sinners and eats with them. I know that I am grateful. I trust you are as well. Much love to you from me uh, and from the, the pastors and the staff of the church. We'll be continuing to correspond with you as we have been this coming week. Um, we have prayer meeting and Bible study on Zoom as normal, and I look forward to interacting with many of you there. Um, Blessings upon you and grace and peace to you.